morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. So it's first Sunday after Easter. Um, and if you were traveling last week, then I want to say that we missed you, and I've got either good or bad news for you this morning. Um, and the news is this, we're doing Easter again. <laughs> That's not exactly true. Um, but I will say this, if you were here last week, you might have noticed there was something a bit strange um, about the sermon. I might be flattering myself to think that you noticed something strange about the sermon, but um, what you might have noticed is this, which is that although we talked about Easter, our anchoring texts from scripture last week were actually from a different part of the gospels than the resurrection story, which is what you normally preach on, on Easter. And here is what happened, if you're the kind of person who's curious. Oop, something is making some funny sounds. I don't know if that's me or what. Um, if you've been around, here's what you may have noticed. If you've been around Revolution this year, then you've heard a few messages at this point about the Apostles' Creed, which we just read a moment ago. And the Apostles' Creed is the subject of our interlude series for this year, which is the thing we do every year. And it's a, a series that we kind of put in between all the other major series of the year and kind of stretch it out over the course of the, of the whole year. And in this series this year, we're looking at these belief statements of the creed one by one as a way of exploring. Ooh, this is getting louder all the time. <laughs> Start whispering to see what can happen. We're getting there. Um, would it be easier for me to turn off for a bit? Oh, they seem to have a plan. Um, anywho. Apostles' Creed, series by series, all that blah, blah, blah. And we're doing the Apostles' Creed this year because it ties into our theme for 2023, which is about discipleship. And when we mapped out our calendar for 2023 back in December, we noticed something that was actually really cool about how all this was working out. And the cool thing is that the third statement in the Apostles' Creed is what we might think of as the Easter statement. It reads like this, he descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. And we also noticed, even better, is that our week, just providentially, to discuss the third statement of the Apostles' Creed was actually going to be April 9th, which was Easter Sunday. So we're like, this is absolutely perfect. And so our initial plan was to do this on Easter. But then, as we got into our series that we just wrapped up on the first half of the Gospel of Luke, we kind of realized at the last minute that we were going to need one more week than we expected, and everything got pushed back, and the result is Easter turned into a discussion of Luke 9, and now April 16th is Easter Part 2, and we're going to be looking at the Apostles' Creed. Now, that might have been a little bit too behind the scenes for, for everybody, but the point is this. We're doubling up. And I will offer you this reassurance. I'm not just preaching the same sermon. Um, thought about it, but here's what we're up to. Last week, we said that the reason that we celebrate Easter every year is because we want to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is simply this, that Jesus lives. And if we have the courage to follow after him, even to places of profound suffering that he promises we will live too. But what we didn't talk about last week was why it was necessary for Jesus to suffer. And so that becomes our big question for today. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. Why does the God of the universe choose to do things this way? Now, my understanding, which I've shared in many sermons over the years, is this, that Jesus chooses to suffer because we need to believe 
that there is no place and no pain and no fear that he doesn't understand and where he will not come to find us. There are metaphysics at work here too, having to deal with sacrifices and atonement and a propitiation for sin. And as you walk out your Christian journey, these are profoundly encouraging things to explore and seek to understand. But it all begins with believing that God comes to where you are to find you. He does this because he loves you unimaginably. And so we believe that Jesus descended to death because that's the bottom edge of where we are. And I think in the same way, we can wrap our heads around his rising too. By reclaiming his own life, Jesus proves to us beyond any shadow of a doubt that death is not the end. And he establishes his authority, his personal authority to offer us what it says that he's offering us, which is eternal life. We can go where he is. If he had stayed dead, then we wouldn't be able to have real confidence in this particular promise. But if he rose, then we can. So what's left then? Were there those middle words in that part of the creed? He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. Why three days? It's not an academic question. If what we believe is that Jesus goes to the edge of where we are, which is death, and then he proves that he can also go to the place that he promises, which is eternal life, then why the three days? Why does he seem to dilly-dally? Would the story be different if Jesus died on the cross, was confirmed by witnesses to do so, and then just sprang up right there? It might be less dramatic, but it would also be more demonstrative in some ways, wouldn't it? All the crowds would have seen. One of the mysteries of the empty tomb on Easter morning is why Jesus doesn't march right into Pontius Pilate's palace and reveal himself. Palace, Pontius Pilate's palace. I didn't practice that. <laughs> but why he doesn't march right in there and reveal himself to the authorities of the land? Or if not the palace, then the temple. Instead, what he does is he appears to a group of women who in first century Jerusalem are not even permitted to give testimony in court. And then, in a closed room, he appears to his disciples. And then he's off to Galilee in the countryside where he continues to walk with his disciples and show himself over a span of 40 days to around 500 witnesses. Now, if he'd sprang up in Jerusalem on Good Friday, there would have been 500 witnesses that very instant. Now, obviously, my intention here is not to try and trouble you with this hypothetical. What I'm trying to do is to lay the foundation for a serious question. It is clear that these three days matter. So why might that be? Now, there's an initial answer, right, which is this. And it's that it takes time for us to believe in Jesus' death. It wouldn't do for Jesus to only seem dead on that cross. We're all familiar with stories, perhaps even intimately and personally so, of people who've died for only a moment and then life has found them again. Our brother's a first responder. And he's brought people back to life in his line of work. And praise God for that. So in Luke's account of the crucifixion, Luke seems to be aware that we're going to need to know 
what happens to Jesus' body. And he also provides our first explanation for those three days. And here's what Luke writes. He writes, Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, who, through a, who though a member of the council, had not agreed to their plan of action. And he came from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid it in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So, a man named Joseph of Arimathea petitions the governor for Jesus' body, and then he buries it quickly in a tomb out of respect and according to the law. Now, however, at the same time, custom also dictates that the body needs to be prepared in a particular kind of way if it's to be rightly honored, but it would seem that there is not time to do so. And the reason is that the Sabbath is beginning, and on that day, work is not to be done. And it would be particularly egregious on that day to handle a dead body, which is unclean. And so, what happens is women who loved Jesus take note of his burial, they rest on the Sabbath, and they plan to properly anoint Jesus' body on the next day. And this, we should always note when we read it, is an act of extraordinary reverence and love, as waiting two days to handle Jesus' body is a gruesome commitment for them to make, but they make it nonetheless. And so an initial theory for these three days, then, has to do with that day of rest, has to do with the Sabbath. Even though he is able to rise from the dead on that day, it would perhaps be understood as a violation of the law to do so. And so the Sabbath is a day of rest, and that, it seems, would include the sleeping of the dead. Now, Jesus' return then at dawn on Sunday is appropriate, and it's perhaps the God-honoring way um, for all of this to unfold. And so that's explanation number one, Jesus rests. Now, there's another theory of the case that has proved intensely controversial in the church's history, and it actually, one might argue, suggests the very opposite explanation. And it begins with Jesus' disciple Peter, who's become a leader in the early church. In one of his letters to other believers, he writes this. He writes, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in former times did not obey. Now, Peter repeats this claim in chapter 4 of that same letter. And we should bear in mind here that Peter is somebody who knows the risen Jesus intimately, and he is in a position to understand these things. So what is it that Peter is proposing? Well, Peter's suggestion here is that after the cross, Jesus' spirit went to the people of the past who could not have known him any other way, in order to rescue them from their suffering too. And this is why you'll sometimes notice that the Apostles' Creed, especially in earlier versions than the ones that we're reading, reads, he descended to hell rather than he descended to the dead. And so I think you can see here, this is, if we're talking about work on the Sabbath, we're talking about a big divergence here. 
Peter's words have led many Christians to believe that Jesus spends that day not resting at all, but instead offering hope and a path to redemption for all of the people who would have had no hope otherwise. And there are good theological grounds for this, right? As Christians, we believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, and that includes that he is the only way to the Father. There is no salvation apart from him. There is no other road. And the reality that there were people who lived and died before Jesus' birth presents for many a real puzzle, especially for people who lived during this time, must be thinking of their own parents and their own grandparents and their own friends. So if the cross proves that Jesus will go anywhere people are in order to rescue them, it becomes reasonable to wonder if that might include wherever dead people are. And I say this is a controversial suggestion because the suggestion by Peter has tied many Christians into a kind of theological knots about the issue. Can Jesus do such a thing? Can Jesus, of all people, go to hell? If hell is eternal torment, then did Jesus in his full self suffer there? And is that a thing that Jesus is even capable of doing, suffering in this kind of a way? Is there a hell in the first place? And if so, does that hell look more like the Hebrew Sheol or the Greek Hades? And whatever else we make of Peter's words, I think we have to confront that they don't really address these details with any clarity. And this has led many Christians over time to disagree and even divide over that third statement in the Apostles' Creed or to alter it, perhaps, as we have done here, so it says, the dead instead of hell. Now, I'm getting deep into the weeds, which is a place that I'm comfortable, but not always a place I should drag you with me. And as interesting as these particular weeds may be, we need to get to the point. And the short answer is that we don't know where Jesus goes. We don't know where hell is or if time passes there in the same way or if Jesus worked or if Jesus rested on that particular Sabbath. What we do believe is this that Jesus is proof that God wants every person to return to his right plans for them. And he will do absolutely anything and everything to make a way. And he will do that because he loves us perfectly. And here's another thing that I think we can learn from all this. And it's the big idea today. Is don't rush the rising. Don't rush the rising. Whatever the metaphysical or the legal reasons for it, Jesus doesn't, and we shouldn't either. Now, what do I mean by that? Don't rush the rising. Here's what Paul says about Jesus in his letter to the Philippians. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave assuming human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name so that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what Paul's saying here is that Jesus, who has every right to the highest of heights, chose instead to descend to the lowest of lows, so that every 
tongue might confess the glory of God. And I think there's no way to look at that other than to say that the lows are intentional. That they are intentional because the full scope of what Jesus is doing matters. At this point, it might be helpful to consider a rubber band. I almost bought like a big one to use as a prop this morning, but some of you know how I feel about props, and so I didn't do it. So this is going to be an imaginary rubber band for you, which may be better because if it were to break in the acting out of this metaphor, it would have been a catastrophe. So you have an imaginary rubber band. When that imaginary rubber band is fresh out of the bag, the question is how much can it hold? And the answer is generally not that much, as a matter of fact. The elastic is tight, the springiness is strong, there's only so much you can get in there. But imagine that you are holding this rubber band out in front of you, and you were to pull one end of this rubber band up as far as it can go, and then you were to pull the other end of that rubber band down as far as it can go. Like, what have you effectively done here? What you've done is you've stretched the rubber band, and now it's capable of holding a lot more. Now, Paul's letter to the Philippians says that Jesus starts way up here, right, existing in the form of God, but he chooses to humble himself, coming down to where we are. And then, living like us as a slave, he humbles himself further yet, stretching that rubber band down all the way to the point of death and even to a point beyond death. And he holds that rubber band there. And then blessing the goodness and the holiness and the godliness of that stretch, what his father does is exalts him even more highly, giving him the name that's above every other name and stretching that limit of this imaginary rubber band like to the ceiling. Now, what now can that rubber band hold? What is outside of its reach? And if death were to lose its grip on the bottom, where will all the things that are now inside of it be pulled? Now, those three days stretch that rubber band. But they also expand its reach to include us and to include everyone. And Jesus didn't rush the rising. So the question that I think we have to wrestle with is, what would it mean for us to do the same? This is the point in the sermon that happens in sermons more frequently than I probably tell you. Where, as I said to Nancy a moment ago in the hallway, I end up preaching in a mirror. And that's what's happening today. I'm preaching in a mirror. So I hope that it is relatable enough to you that it's not useless for the next five minutes, but that's where we're at. In another letter, Paul says this to the Galatians. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become enslaved to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we're to be imitators of Christ, to have the same mind as Him, then we have to choose submission. There is great and there is even unimaginable freedom in the gospel. 
released from the burden of the law, we can eat the uneatable and touch the untouchable. In the early church, that includes baptizing Gentiles and socializing with the lowly and unclean and consuming non-kosher foods. But what Paul is saying here is that the real way of Jesus is, even given these freedoms, to choose to forsake them out of love for others. And the apostles themselves model this understanding by choosing to suffer endlessly, choosing poverty for themselves, turning the other cheek to their accusers, and blessing those who curse them. And they instruct other Christians to the best of their ability and to the peace of their conscience to do the same. It is a stumbling block for your brother to eat food, sacrifice to idols, don't do so. If you were a servant before the freedom and identity of Christ became yours, remain a servant. It's not that you have to do these things. It's that because you know that you are safely inside of that rubber band, that you can do them with confidence in Christ. Now, what is the parallel to our own lives? Jesus descended to the dead with all that may or may not mean, then we can choose to go with him. And what does that mean for me personally? Well, it means a lot of things. It means being willing to sit with friends in the worst of their brokenness and grief, even when that bleeds over onto me. And it means giving what money I have away as freely as I can. And it means listening when all I want to do is speak, which is hard for me. It means sitting at the table with people that I disagree with profoundly and who sometimes disagree just as passionately with me. And at root, it means being willing to unclutch my fingers from around my own self-righteousness and my sense of what I deserve or what I've earned. And I don't do this perfectly. And I don't even do it adequately but I want to keep stretching downwards because ultimately I want to be able to hold as much as I can. And when I rush the redemption story, I leave people behind. Now, what does it mean for you to descend to the dead? Well, it may mean listening compassionately to somebody that you think is dead wrong. And it may mean giving something away that is dear to you. And it may mean not getting what you feel entitled to or being patient with a person or a job or a spouse or even a church that's not giving you what you want. And it always means this. It always means forsaking your freedom to show real love to others. And what does all this mean for revolution? Well, it means the obvious things, right? Like trying to be generous in our city and committing to trust other churches and Christians even if they don't always agree with us or with each other for that matter. It means showing up, right, in groups and at service opportunities and showing up to each other as friends. And it also means this. It means trusting that the healthiest version of this church is one where people aren't all in the same place or on the same step with their faith. Being patient with each other. Respecting each other. Listening and giving ground when we disagree. 
And the thing is, we are all free not to do those things. We're free not to do them. But how big do we really want this rubber band to be? And the example set for us is a God who stretches, who stretches beyond death and beyond life at the greatest cost to himself. And no matter how hard we try, we're never going to be able to equal that. But it honors God and his spirit within us when we do what we can. The closing thought is this. The rising is guaranteed now. The Easter thought is this. The rising is guaranteed now. Your eternity is secure. What are you willing to do? What are you willing to give in this life? Maybe a challenge for this week is to consider what's just a little bit more. One more text message when you're tired. One more dollar to a person who asks. One more try at checking in with a friend who's angry at you or who you're angry at. Love each other. And love each other because you're free to. I'll pray for us and we'll receive communion this morning. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the example that you set for us. Thank you for the, the wisdom such as it is that you give us and the grace that you extend to us when we mess things up. God, I pray that you will be with this church and the people in it. That you'll lead us where you want us to go. That you'll show us grace. And that your will will be done here in our city. We hope that that will is one that includes us. But supremely, God, what we want is for your kingdom to come. 